One thing that I sometimes like to tell parents is that one way to look at this is that it's not necessarily a, a battle between you and your child over social media. It's actually you and your child together fighting a little bit of a battle against social media, trying to figure out how to best manage your time on there. This year, the CDC's annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey offered a grim outlook for the well-being of young people. And emerging research points to social media as a key factor. You're listening to Episode 3 in a special five-part series about mental health and teens, where we are bringing together experts, advocates, and school leaders to better understand the issues and discuss how best to support kids, teens, and their parents. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In our last two episodes, we've spoken with Professor Jonathan Haidt and Dr. Jill Walsh about how teens manage their digital world and the impact it has on their mental health. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jacqueline Nisi, clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University to discuss her research on the effects of social media on teen behaviors and to understand how parents think about their children's use of social media. Jackie Nisi from Brown University, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to talk about teens and their parents and caregivers and everyone's relationship with social media. And this is a big part of your work at Brown. Why did you choose this focus for your research? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm very happy to be here. So as you said, my focus is really on um, social media and digital technology, and particularly how adolescents or teenagers are using it, and of course, how parents can help them manage it. And it's something that I've been interested in for a while. So uh, I've now been studying this topic for almost 12 years. It's obviously changed a lot during that time. But I first got interested in it just because I've always been interested in adolescence as this really important developmental period where things are changing so fast. It's this really amazing period where kids are learning so much and growing and developing, and there's so many great opportunities for for teaching during that period. And we know that social relationships are really important and become very important during that time period, and that includes relationships with peers. And at some point, it became very obvious that those relationships were now happening almost primarily via technology and particularly via social media. And we just didn't have a very good sense of how that was impacting teens. So what kind of impact was that having on their development, on their mental health? And I felt like this was an important topic to, to look into more closely. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's not necessarily just social media. We know that mental illness, there's usually multiple inputs, you know, in terms of causing mental illness, although social media could certainly be one of those things. What are what are the other things? You know, as a mother, I just want to know what else I should be worrying about. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I'm a parent, too. And so, of course, this is something that's always, always on my mind as a mom and a psychologist. You know, so I think mental health is obviously complex. And we know that when it comes to mental illness, there's usually some combination of biological predisposition or something that sort of sets the stage for a person to be more vulnerable to develop a mental illness. 
And then there are other, whether it's environmental, social factors that also play in. So some other factors that we know play a role in mental health include things like, of course, family dynamics and the health of the family environment, systemic factors, things like poverty is highly correlated and the stressors that can come with that. And we know as well, there's some evidence that school environments can play a role, social factors. So you know, the quality of friendships and social relationships, all of these things come together in different ways to create, you know, risk or resilience. And it's, it's a little tough to determine, you know, for any individual person, what, what is the combination of factors that may be contributing. But is it fair to say that those other things kind of have remained steady state? Like there's a growth in total numbers in the population of people, I would imagine the percentages of the impact on of those things on people wouldn't change that much because people have always had families and people have always had those other inputs. And social media seems to be the one thing that is an outlier, is like newly introduced and seems to directly correlate with this like massive rise in mental health. Does that is that yeah. fair or, or not fair? There's a lot of thinking behind the idea that social media is the cause. And there's certainly um, good reason for us to think that that, is, that could be a cause. But I think we also, you know, we can't necessarily rule out some of these other things that also could be playing a role. And likely it's some combination of, a, you know, of a lot of different things. And social media, I think, even if it is related to one of these other causes, social media can amplify some of that. Because I think if if kids are on social media and they're seeing so much about, say, you know, a current event that's particularly stressful, they're seeing videos about it repeatedly on social media, that's going to have a bigger impact than if they're mm -hmm. less aware of it. So it's hard, I think, as well to separate the impact of some of these different things. Yeah, that's such a good point. I want to talk a little bit about parents, because in this series, we have not yet focused very much on the parents of today's youth. And your, your research includes parents. Can we talk about them in two categories? One being those who already have kids using social media and the other being those whose kids are not yet on social media. Do you interact with both and how is each group feeling generally about social media? I bet it's different. I think, uh, yeah. And then I would say there's also like some parents who are a little bit in the middle where maybe they've started to, their kids have sort of dipped their toes into some social media, or maybe their kids are watching YouTube, but they're not on other social media platforms. So yeah, I would say for, um, for parents of kids who are not yet on social media, I hear understandably a lot of anxiety around what it's going to be like if and when their kids join. I hear a lot of parents who are just concerned about what the impacts are going to be, about how to keep their kids safe. A lot of parents are, I think, trying to sort of hold off on social media for as long as they can for their kids. And so I hear, you know, a lot of that. Among parents who have their kids on social media already, I think, you know, of course, some parents feel like they have it under control and they feel like they, they trust their kids and their kids are doing fine and they're sort of thriving and so they're not too worried about it. And then among other parents, I, I hear more of this feeling of the screens have sort of taken over and we don't know how to 
get our child off of social media and we're worried about the things that they're looking at or being exposed to and just concerns about how to how to manage that overall. And how do you think about that? Because it from folks that I've talked about who study this and who are in your field, there is, you know, this this worry about this new introduction of social media in kids' lives, but also does a it does seem that mental illness in some ways is contagious. You know, could two things be going on as well? Like, could you be impacted, even if you're not a heavy user of social media, if that is sinking your friends, you know, or a friend or a friend group, can you go down with it? Could that be a part of why there's such a magnitude of increase in, in mental illness is that you're suffering even if you're kind of riding alongside of a heavy user? I don't know. Is it like smoking to some degree in in that way? I will say that this is one of the things that makes it so challenging when we're trying to figure out how much social media itself is playing a role in mental health because because social media is so widespread among teenagers and most are using it. For the kids who aren't using it, you run into a different set of issues where they in some cases might left out because all of their peers are on there and that's where they're making plans and that's where they have their inside jokes. And and that creates sort of a new set of challenges for someone who's not using social media. And so it becomes hard for us to study or even know, is it better to keep them off of it or is it better to allow it? What's going to actually have the most positive impact? So I, I think that this is, there's definitely a what some people would call a network effect, where because all of or most teens are using social media, it's very hard to isolate for a particular teen the impact of the social media itself versus their peer group that's using social media. And that becomes just very hard to separate. Yeah, I can I can imagine it becomes kind of dizzying because it does it does seem like you're you're not going to talk to a parent who doesn't have some I I don't talk to parents who don't have some sort of worry about the impact of social media or maybe this larger impact but it's hard to even articulate it unless you've spending a lot of time understanding the space. I have a question. So you're you have a yeah, you have a young child and I I think a lot about one of the biggest problems, you know, in social media comes from Instagram. You know, it's probably Instagram and TikTok and anything with a like or share button seem to be the most problematic applications. You have young kids, you know, so does, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and um, Priscilla Chan. They have young kids. None of those kids have yet touched social media, I'm guessing. And so personally, how do you think about your child and children? And what will your rules be, knowing everything that you know? I think so. It's hard to say exactly what my rules will be in the future. So right now I have uh, I have a toddler and I'm also expecting uh, another boy. So it's hard to say when they are teenagers what this world is going to look like. I think it's already evolving so quickly and it has evolved so much in just the past few years. I will say that, you know, one thing that that doing this research has made me very aware of as a parent is just my own relationship to social media and how that impacts how I'm interacting with my kids. So in some ways I see a lot of benefits to parents of social media with access to information and, you know, learning things that I might not have seen before getting ideas and all that kind of thing, feeling, you know, connected to other parents. 
And I do notice that there are times where it seems like it's getting in the way a little bit. And I think that a lot of parents feel this where they're distracted on their phones or they're, you know, scrolling social media when they'd be, you know, better off spending that time really present with their kids. And that's something that in the research is actually has a name. It's called technoference. And it's something that I've just become a lot more aware of having done this research and becoming a parent. And it's something I really, of course, I'm not perfect and nobody is at this, but it's definitely something that I try to avoid. And I'm very conscious of when my use of social media might be interfering with my time with my kids. And so I think that this is an issue for everyone, parents and kids together. And one thing that I sometimes like to tell parents is that one way to look at this is that it's not necessarily a, a battle between you and your child over social media. It's actually you and your child together fighting a little bit of a battle against social media, trying to figure out how to best manage your time on there. Yeah, that's interesting. And you just you're deeply in the data from a new research project that you did with a colleague at Brown, um, Jennifer Wolf, about how parents are managing their early adolescent social media use. And this included questions about the parents own use. What, what was what were some of the things that you have learned so far that you find very compelling? Yeah, so this is a study, as you said, that I've been working on with my colleague Jennifer Wolf um, at Brown, and we're just now getting the data back. So we're just starting to look into it. And what we did was we asked, we had about 100 parents, and we, we asked them questions every day for two weeks. So 14-day period, what strategies they had used that day to try to manage their teen social media use. And this was with teens ages 12 to 15, so slightly on the younger end. And so what we found was of course, parents are using a variety of strategies and they are in many ways sort of trying their best to, to come up with what is the best way to keep their child safe, to protect their privacy at the same time, to set limits. So one thing we found is that nearly all parents, about 96%, said that they were communicating with their child about their social media use. So this was by far the most common strategy that parents were using was just talking to them about it, asking them questions, sharing their views on social media, making sure they knew what their kids were doing online by asking them questions about it. And the research supports that that that's actually a really important and effective strategy, though it seems basic for managing our kids' media use. Parents were also doing a combination of other strategies. So some were using what we would call co-use, which is essentially using social media together with their child. So I think some parents hear that and they sort of balk at, you know, wait, don't I want my kid to be using social media less? <laughs> Why would I be joining them in this? But there is actually some evidence that using it together, whether that's creating a post together or having your child watch it, uh, show you a video that they're watching on TikTok, can spark conversation and can actually be really powerful for getting a better sense of what your kid is up to online and helping them manage it that way. I, well, I'm just curious about both of those findings because it's happening at a time in adolescents' lives where they are beginning to right, kind of seek their own identity and pull a bit away from their parents. And I just look back to like, you know, you grew up in the 80s or the 90s and your parents really weren't kind of asking you 
who you were on the phone with, what you were talking about, what you were reading. Like they weren't that invasive, nor I think just as normal adolescents, would you be that apt to have a deep conversation about, you know, those things. And yet now that we have this ever present, perpetual, fast moving thing called social media, we need to be more engaged because of the addictive nature of it and because we're worried about the impact. And at the same time, does it create like a different operating model between parents and, and kids as kids move through what is normal, healthy growth, you know, in terms of mental health, wellness and, and, you know, social, emotional wellness. It's so interesting because I do think there are things that are universal about parents raising teenagers that have always sort of been the case. And I think part of that is this balance of protecting their safety, making sure they're safe. And some of that involves just knowing what they're up to. And on the other side, giving them privacy and allowing them to grow in their independence. Cause we know that's also a really important piece of adolescence and healthy adolescence. And, and so I think balancing those two things has always been present and has always been a challenge that parents and teens are navigating. And now, like you said, I think that it's become even more challenging because I do think that there are new risks that, teens are running into online that parents are wanting to be aware of. It's actually harder with social media to passively monitor what they're up to. In other circumstances, you know, you might be able to check in, you know, even see what they're watching on TV for a second or, you know, just keep an eye. But you really can't do that with social media as easily. It's definitely a bigger challenge. And I think parents are are struggling with that in many cases. What are the right conversations for parents to have with their kids? How do they insert themselves in an appropriate way, but an effective way in terms of conversation? Yeah. So I, with, with parents, I always recommend starting out with questions as much as possible. So I think that for many teens, it can feel like when their parents are broaching these conversations with them, that they know better, (laughs) that the teen knows better because they are more sort of up to date on some of these technologies. They might feel like parents are a little bit out of the loop. Uh, Maybe that's also something that's universal about teens and their feelings about their parents, but perhaps exacerbated by, (laughs) by social media. So I think that a good opening is just asking questions about what kids are up to online asking them in particular about some of the positives as well. So asking them what they like about using social media, asking them what their favorite apps are, who they like talking to, who they like following, all these things that are maybe on the more positive end, I think can start a conversation off on the right foot. I think when we go in also with a a super negative approach that sometimes that can turn teens off just because it's not necessarily going to be consistent with their experience of enjoying some aspects of social media. And so striking that balance is challenging, but I think important. And then I think it's, I think in beyond asking questions, I think sharing, sharing concerns is important as well. So parents being honest about what are their concerns about social media? Are they worried about the time that their teen is spending and how that might get in the way of things? Are they worried about the content that they could be exposed to and having really open, open conversations about that, as well as uh, conversations about their expectations. So what are what are the rules when it comes to social media use and why are those the rules? I think that's that's a good place to start. 
And you created Tech Without Stress with another psychologist and researcher, Emily Weinstein. I think it's a great resource. And on it, you offer a Tech Parenting 101 class, which, you know, you kind of say that it's the only online course of that nature. I think it's a terrific thing. I wish it existed 10 years ago. What are some of the nuggets of wisdom that are taught in this in this class? Can you talk a little bit about what you found to be most useful to parents as they're you know, kind of sitting in this space where nothing's happened yet, but things are about to happen? Yes, it is definitely a very, very tricky space to be in. And particularly as right now, we know that there's changes pending at the, you know, at the higher sort of legislative level, but that has not, of course, yet happened and has not yet trickled down to actually teens' lives. So right now, parents are really in this tough position of having to navigate this. So yeah, so Tech Without Stress, as you mentioned, is a course that my colleague Emily Weinstein and I created for parents of preteens and teens. It's an online course, asynchronous, so parents can go through it at their own pace. And in it, we really try to cover the major topics that have become obvious to us as issues parents are running into when it comes to managing technology and social media and gaming for preteens and teens. So that includes everything from how to manage screen time, how to come up with screen time rules, when to know if screen addiction or problematic use is an issue, how to support kids' self-esteem in the digital age, both online and offline, and then how to navigate, you know, tricky topics like things like pornography and sexting, violence and video games, all these tricky things that are a little harder to to talk about. Uh, We offer some guidance on those topics as well. So some of your research, just to kind of summarize some of the things that popped out at me, half of girls who use TikTok say they feel addicted to the platform, that a quarter of those who use TikTok say it gets in the way of their sleep every day, that they report being exposed to suicide and eating disorder relating content that's upsetting to them. 40% of girls on Instagram and TikTok say that they see harmful suicide related content. I'm just going to stop there for a second because I never see any of that stuff. So what is where what is hap, what is what is their journey on Instagram that they're seeing all of these things and then we can also talk about sleep because that's that's a big problem too. Yeah, so this that data comes from the survey I mentioned with Common Sense Media that came out recently. It was a, a this national survey of adolescent girls. And when it comes to the content that they're seeing, I think girl, we asked girls about a range of different types of content, you know, both positive and negative. And one of the things we asked about, because we were particularly interested in mental health, was content related to suicide or self-harm, as well as content related to eating disorders. And like you said, about four in 10 girls so that they were coming across harmful content related to suicide or self-harm, at least monthly platforms like TikTok and Instagram. So this is, I think, a, a major issue. And something that's happening more commonly than I think many adults would expect, just given what you said, that this, for many of us, is is not necessarily part of our experience online. And so some of this is related to the user themselves. And so we know that, that these platforms are recommending content and that teens are 
consuming a lot of recommended content, particularly on TikTok, where it's, it's less about who they're following. There's almost less choice in terms of what they're being exposed to because it's really about algorithms recommending things to them. And if teens have looked at some kind of content that somehow relates to that harmful content, they're far more likely in the future to be fed that type of harmful content. And that comes out in another statistic from this study, which is that among girls who are already struggling with depressive symptoms, the number who are exposed to suicide or self-harm content monthly was seven in 10. So the vast majority in some cases are being exposed to this type of content. And you know that may be partially because these teens can get into a little bit of a rabbit hole where they look at a little bit of this content, maybe because they're already struggling, and then they just keep getting fed more and more of it. And that's obviously, I think, a, a major issue on these platforms. Yeah. And I don't know how do you does your work include having any conversations with the creators of the platforms? Because it, it seems like knowing that this trend exists and that it is such difficult and dangerous content, it should be tagged differently. And, you know, there should be alerts that, you know, kind of say these users are going down a rabbit hole that's very dangerous. You know, it just, you know, you worry like it, it's because, you know, you're dealing in things that are highly destructive. And, you know, and it's surprising to me that they're not taking more action. This is a really tricky issue. And I think that part of that is because in many cases, platforms want to protect users who want to share about their experiences with their mental health in ways that may be productive. And they want to protect that kind of content while also limiting the more problematic or harmful types of content. And that distinction is sometimes a little a little murky, not always, but sometimes it's a little murky. And some platforms have taken you know, different steps to try to address this, banning certain types of content that's maybe more graphic or that even encourages harmful behaviors like self-harm. In some cases, they might downrank that kind of content so it doesn't show up as frequently. You know, But we know that whatever steps are being taken, it seems like it hasn't been quite enough just yet. And so I do think that platforms are actively trying to address some of this and figure out a solution. And I, and I think it's something it's really important that they get right. Yeah, I agree. And all the other thing that I took, I, I couldn't believe was that, you know, over 50% of girls on Instagram and Snapchat say they've been contacted by a stranger who makes them feel uncomfortable you know, is this just the amplification of stalking? You know, we're in a we're in a digitized world that has a network effect. And so we can expect that more of this is going to happen. It happens in the real world. It's amplified in the digital world. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I think it's hard to it's hard to say exactly from this data what what is causing that. You know, in some cases that may be I think the thing we're most worried about, which would be adults who they don't know, contact them in, in ways that make them uncomfortable. In some cases, it may be peers their same age who they would prefer to not be contacting them. But whatever the case, I think, you know, we in this question, we explicitly asked about strangers contacting them in ways that made them feel uncomfortable. And so we know that this is something that girls would prefer is not happening. Um, and that, of course, we and adults would also prefer that. In many cases, I think parents and teens actually don't necessarily know about some of the steps they can take as well to prevent things like that. So there are ways on most platforms to limit 
the people who can contact you to be friends or even friends of friends to limit whether you can receive private messages in the first place and then who can send those private messages to you. There are a number of these types of controls and protections that can be put in place. And first of all, the platforms don't necessarily do a great job of advertising that these things are available. And also, I think that a lot of parents and teens just aren't aware. Yeah, that's really important to know. Did you see the new, John Haight just released new research on when kids get phones and how that correlates to mental health later in life or mental wellness later in life. And the studies that he released showed that the earlier a child gets a phone, and again, in particular girls, the worse off they reported being well in terms of mental illness as they entered adulthood. What do you think of that study? Is that, you know, that certainly should be something that parents also know, right? Because I, I think, you know, had, had those studies been out 10 years ago, I would have been even more reserved in the way that I thought about, you know, phone use and social media use. What do you think of that? Yeah, I've actually just been digging into this study this week and looking into it. So yeah. it's good timing. I uh, This is a, a study that came out from a nonprofit called Sapien Labs. And it's a really impressive study in terms of the scale. There's almost 30,000 participants in the study across the world. It is 18 to 24. And what they did was they asked those young adults the age that they got their first smartphone or tablet. And then they also asked them about their mental health currently as, as young adults. And what they found was that there was this association between getting a smartphone or tablet at an earlier age, and then also reporting lower levels of mental health as a young adult. And so I think that, you know, a couple of things about the study. So the most important caveat I would just throw out there is that this is still a correlational study, even though it's huge. And I definitely think that it, it adds something interesting to our knowledge on this topic. We still actually don't know if the smartphone use is causing the mental health concerns because there could be lots of other variables like you know family circumstances, for example, that contribute both to the likelihood of getting a phone at an earlier age and the likelihood of having a mental health concerns as a young adult. So that we can't really say for sure the causality in this. That said, I, I think that there is a lot of good reason generally to think about delaying smartphone use and to think about delaying social media use. We don't have a lot of good causal evidence. We do have some correlational evidence in addition to this study that would suggest that that makes sense. And just from a, honestly, a common sense perspective, I think that a lot, a lot of parents see that it makes sense for their child to, to wait on getting a smartphone. And, and even if they do get a smartphone, maybe waiting on introducing social media, uh, those don't have to come at the same time. Yeah. And you recently did a post on your on your blog that talked about options, you know, so other other phones that look like smartphones, but only have limited functionality as a potential first step. I'm assuming you wrote that because there were many parents asking you about, you know, I need my child to have access to a phone and maybe some other things, but I don't want them use, you know, using certain applications yet. Is, is, so are you finding that to be a, a new general trend in terms of trying to push, you know, utilization down the, down the road? Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote about this for my sub stack, which is called Techno Sapiens. Um, 
and it's all about psychology and technology and parenting. And I was hearing, like you said, from a lot of parents who are thinking about doing this, thinking about delaying the smartphone, but just didn't really have a sense of what other options or that there even were other options out there. I think oftentimes we approach this as a, an all or nothing thing. Either I'm going to get them a phone and it's going to be an iPhone with access to any social media app that they want, or I'm going to get them nothing. But of course, there are a lot of options in the middle. And a lot of those I think are really good options, particularly for that you know early teen, preteen, maybe like middle school age, you know, things like, so when it comes to what teens would call dumb phones, so phones that maybe don't have all the capabilities of a smartphone, things like the Gab phone is one, um, there's a pinwheel phone, the Bark phone, all of these options have sort of limited functionality. So no access to social media apps, in some cases, no access to an internet browser of any kind, and also options for parent controls. So where parents can set limits on time, in some cases, they can even monitor some of the content that's that's coming up or texts that are being sent on the phones. And I think many families more and more are finding that these kinds of things are a good intermediate step uh, before moving on to the full smartphone. Yeah, 100%. So there's a lot going on in the world in terms of policy, litigation, that I think every state now across the country has lawsuits against Facebook or Meta and TikTok. And so those will play out the way that they'll play out. Do you feel like we're headed in the right direction in terms of policy? Are there other things that you would like to see become national policy or statewide policy across uh, as many states as possible? Yeah, well, we're certainly seeing a lot of different proposals, both the state and the federal level when it comes to technology and social media in particular, and in particular, thinking about kids use of social media. So under, you know, under 18 kids and teens, I won't comment on specific policy because I think that my expertise is really as a researcher and a psychologist, not as a you know policymaker. But I do think that that some sort of policy solution is is needed uh, in in this area. I think that you know parents can't do this alone, and you know these platforms have been around for a while, and you know we haven't seen really a lot of progress in terms of making them spaces that are optimized for kids' well-being. In general, I think that one thing that would be very helpful on these platforms is simply giving teens and families more choices about their experiences on the platform. So right now, a lot of this is driven by defaults. It's driven by algorithms and suggestive content and Every person who opens the app has the same experience when they get to that, uh, whatever the first page of the app is, with lots of nudges sort of driving them to do different things in different directions, and just giving users more options for, you know, setting limits, for managing the types of content they can see, for, you know, again, limiting who can contact them and who they can interact with. All these things, I think, actually would make a big difference in users' experience of the platforms, you know, turning off certain features or on certain features. But in many cases, those aren't those aren't yet a reality. And I think that would that would make a big difference. Yeah, that's really smart. That really it really would, too. And it would be a way to kind of enter that world collaboratively with your teen. And so as a researcher, you've got I'm sure you're doing a lot of research and you are reading a lot of research. What do you what do you think is the thing 
you want to do next or that you hope someone is working on now or you know someone's working on now that you're really interested in seeing the results of? Yeah, well, one one thing that I've actually gotten really interested in recently and that I'm hoping to have a chance to study soon is thinking about the messaging around social media that we use when we're teaching kids and teens about it. I think that right now we have a lot of, you know, sort of default messaging that we use that's perhaps pretty negative <laughs> and in some cases for good reason around the risks of social media and things they should be looking out for. But how do we actually optimize that messaging to make it so that teens are being encouraged and taught to use social media in healthy ways to understand that they do have some agency in terms of choosing how they use these platforms and how they engage with them and that they're not destined to have a negative impact on them. And I I just, I'm very curious about how, how the way we talk about social media impacts teens experiences with it and then how we can actually, you know, use that to our advantage to help them use it in, in healthier ways. So that's the that's the next uh, step for me in my research. That is so smart. I love it. Well, I need to let you go, but it is um, it was really nice to be able to talk to you for this past hour. I I learned a lot. Your research is amazing. The work that you're doing is incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Nisi. Tune in for our next episode in this special series when we'll be speaking to Boston Public Schools Superintendent Mary Skipper about the impact of social media in our schools. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.